1: Day, January 18th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions, it's the gist, I'm Mike Pesca. There are 223 Republicans in Congress. A couple of them, eh, I'd say a couple, I like, I like a lot. few of them, many of them, let's say a few dozen... I think are fine public servants, especially in the context of they represent a bunch of Republicans and they're doing it well, representing the interests of their constituents who have a conservative view of the world. Pluralism. You got to accept it. Well over a hundred of them voted to decertify the results of the election, got no use for those people. And of those well over a hundred, uh, maybe a handful, a couple handfuls, Gates, Boebert, Biggs, Goser are horrible blights on America, democracy, logic, Jim Jordan, let's put him in there. And then there's one who I kind of love. And I shouldn't. I don't know exactly which of those categories. Certainly not the good public service categories he's in. But I don't really even know his name. He's George Santos. I love this guy. Marissa Cabas, who writes for MSNBC, posted a picture of George Santos. Or maybe not George Santos. Maybe George DeVolder Santos. Maybe Anthony George DeVolder Santos. Now we're getting into law firm territory, which he'll need to hire. I spoke by phone with Yula Rochard, a Brazilian drag queen who was friends with George Santos when he lived near Rio. She said everyone knew him as Anthony, never George. Okay, that's fine so far, not an indictment. Or by his drag name, Katara, and confirms this photo is from a 2008 drag show. Ilora Rochard and Katara Ravache. It's titled, and there is George, looks like George, or Katara, don't want to uh, dead name him, George name him, future name him. He's wearing quite an attractive frock. Not here to mock George DeVolder, Santos, Katara, Ravache, Santos, Jose so Verbal Kint. Here to celebrate the man or occasional gal. Marissa Cobbis, puts this in context by saying the important context here is that Santos ran as a far right candidate and continues to align himself with transphobes, homophobes who target drag shows with violence. No, that's not the important context. I mean, sure, it's some context. The context here is the guy is a loon, not because he was a drag queen or maybe is a drag queen because he is a loon and all of this stuff where he goes to meetings and talks about what can we do to use the trans community to turn them against Republicans. It's all part of this lunacy. I love it. It's so entertaining. We only have, he might be jettisoned from the Congress, and won't we lose a lot? A little earlier today, I thought, oh my God, after all this stuff, is it the dog? The fact that he said he would raise money for a disabled veteran's dog, then kept the money and the dog died after all this? Is it going to be the dog that gets them? Americans do care a lot about dogs. And now I wonder, is it going to be the drag queen thing that gets them? I hope not. I hope we can celebrate the drag queenedness of it all as we just savor what I think will be the last few weeks of this blessed gift that George Santos has given us. On the show today, it is a very serious spiel where I talk about a police killing, a killing by police of a man who was in detention. that. I think, highlights some of the differences between how we're publicly dealing with what they call police-involved killings now versus even a couple of years ago. But first, we're joined once more by James Vincent. James is the author of Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement From Cubits to Quantum Constants. Yesterday, we discussed history, but there's so much going on in the current state of measurement telling you if you listen to yesterday's show what seems like a little bit of a dry topic the kind that you could get by reading the side of 12 inch long pieces of wood it it just comes to life thanks to my guest james vincent James Vinson is the author of Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants. And it is more of the quantum constants realm that we partake in now. Because I asked James in this part of the interview how he got freshly into measurements. It was by studying the redefinition, well, actually not redefinition, but recalibration of a kilogram. So the question is, what had a kilogram been and what is it now?
0: So, the kilogram didn't change in its value. The way we define the kilogram's value changed. So this was um, something that happened uh, in 2018 and 2019. Um, so the metric system is maintained by a organisation called the Bureau International de Poids et BIPM, which is based in. Paris, uh, based in the outskirts of Paris, um, but is an international organization. You know, it sends scientists from the US, from UK, from everywhere, uh, and they work to maintain these units of the metric system, which is officially known as the System International, or SI. Um, Now, all these units used to be defined using physical artifacts. So when the metric fixed system was first created, there was a meter bar, there was a kilogram bar that was forged, that was kept in a vault, and every meter in the world was a copy of, or every kilogram in the world was a copy of. Um, You know, this is sort of a, a quite simple way to standardize measurement. You just have one thing and you copy it. (laughs) Yeah, it it makes sense intuitively. However, everything physical obviously wears and tears over time. And over time, uh, they found that these physical artifacts were changing in one way or the other, and they moved them all away from being physical to being based on sort of abstract mathematical calculations. Now, the kilogram was the last physical standard of uh, the metric system of the SI. There was a physical kilogram called the International Prototype of the Kilogram or the IPK um, that was a little uh, weight, as you (laughs) would expect, made of platinum iridium alloy about the size of a hen's egg uh, that was kept under lock and key in this underground vault in Paris. And every kilogram in the world was a copy of this kilogram. Um, And now uh, there was a problem. Scientists, uh, obviously, they they had copies of it. They had a sort of uh, an honor guard of six other kilograms called the témoin or the witness kilograms, and they would compare their weight every now and again to see that everything was still, you
1: know, on the straight and narrow, as it were. Uh-huh. It, sounds, they, it sounds like Saddam Hussein's doubles, but go ahead. Like those two, <laughs> those, case we could check out those two guys, right, before we get to the main one. Right, if
0: some, if some American zealots describe, decide to storm <laughs> the BIPM headquarters and take those metric yes. bastards down for once. Anyway, right. um, so they found, when they were comparing the weight of the IPK, that it was losing weight. Now, it was losing weight by a tiny amount, uh, 50 Uh micrograms, which is about the weight of a single eyelash. But it's obviously, um, when you're working in sort of really high precision science, and I'm talking about stuff like, you know, uh, particle accelerators and space science, like the, the, the James Webb telescope, you need to have a degree of accuracy that goes down to the micrograms and much below that as well, in fact. So they decided to get rid of this physical standard, and they replaced it with a calculation, which is based on a pair of quantum constants. Um, and this is now true of all the metric, all the systems of the, sorry, all the units of the metric system. So, for example, the speed of light is used to define length. Um, the uh, the meter is no longer defined as the, the length of a bar in a vault somewhere, but it's defined as the distance travelled by um, uh, by light over a certain amount of time. And then you think, okay, well, how do you measure time then? And it's because a second is defined as a certain number of rotations or energy changes, energy transitions in an atom, a cesium-133 atom. So everything, all the units we use now, uh, even though they, they seem so everyday to us, are based on these cutting-edge, uh, physics, this cutting-edge physics, this incredible science. And that includes, by the way, all the units that you use in the U.S. You know, the U.S. is... Um, nominally non-metric, but actually all your units have been defined using metric standards since uh, 1899, I believe the Leadenhall order. Um, so the. US is metric uh, in secret.
1: <laughs> but some of us we're somewhat metric. We use like seconds and uh, amperes, right?
0: Yeah, and you know your your, your uh, military is very metric. Uh, you yep. know, uh, an American knows what a nine millimeter handgun is. They know what clicks are when it comes to, you know, uh, distances. Um, I think the US, the U.S. is secretly more metric than it believes. And it's the same in the U.K. So, um, you know, we are a metric country, but everyone in the U.K. talks about their height in feet and inches. one talks about mm-hmm. it in meters. Everyone talk or not everyone, but a lot of people talk about weight in pounds and ounces or in stone. These are units that are sort of close to the body. And I think they're close to our personal understanding of ourselves uh, and their culture as well. You know, no one's going to get rid of pints in pubs, for example. Um, I don't know. Do you think the America will ever go metric?
1: I think it will, because I think that the tech sector is so ascendant and they're not of the same uh the same retrograde ilk as the traditional guardians of our culture. So I think that it's inevitable, but I don't see football changing. I mean, American football, but I think that, yeah, because it'll be hard to, uh, it's so standard, it'll be hard to compare records. So those will be in yards, but eventually it will be.
0: I hadn't thought about football as a holdout against it. That's super interesting. Um, I mean, in in the UK, for example, we still measure cricket pitches in chains, Mm. which is a unit of measurement that went out of favour hundreds of years ago, but is um, was used very much during the sort of um, the 18th century and a little into the 19th as well. I guess Um, uh, the surveyor's chain, which is I think 66 feet. Um, but which is, uh, this is, you know, one of these interesting things about measurement is that as you point out with, um, football, once something is sort of ingrained in the landscape, as it were, it's very difficult to shift and chains, for example, were used to measure out American city blocks, um, by early land surveyors. So a lot of American blocks are measured in divisions of chains, essentially. Wow. Um, and once something, yeah, becomes part of the landscape,
1: you can't get rid of it. So. Before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about time, because mm. time is in the book and people had to define time, and it seems harder to me for any culture beyond uh, a really a village or something under the Dunbar number, there's a, uh, or Mm. over the Dunbar number, there's a measurement, to get on the same page. If we talk about, for instance, distance, I don't have to explain, we wouldn't have to explain to other people what we mean by distance. Like, we might have to explain how far the distance is and say it's this far, or, you know, somehow draw something to say, use this when measuring distance. But with time, other than the sunrise and the sunset, with which isn't consistent. Even the length around the planet isn't consistent. You know, ex- you don't know exactly when you're exactly uh, returning to where you started. It would seem a harder concept to transport. So, mm. how did they crack that nut when it came to time?
0: Well, I think it's a difficult one because we definitely we don't know the answer for sure. Because as, as you say, uh, it, it's not an intuitive um, thing to measure. There are certain intuitive aspects of time. So the earliest units of time we get are based on natural cycles we see within the Earth's, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the astronomy of the solar system, essentially. So obviously we have day and night as a cycle, and then we have seasonal cycles, and then we have the moon as a cycle, and that splits us up into months. Um, and then we have equinoxes that help us split up into the year. So these were um, observations that came from the world of astronomy. Um, this is thought to be perhaps where we get, say, uh, the division, the divisions of the day into 24 hours. Um, uh, and the, this was because the Babylonians who came up with a lot of this early astronomy used a sort of um, a base 60 system and also base 12 in, in their calculations as well. Um, but, Time was one of these units that was flexible for a long amount of time. <laughs> Sorry, for a long amount of time. So you would divide up the day into 12 hours between sunrise and sunset. But as you point out, that is um, those are a movable feast. They shift during the seasons. So that meant the length of an hour would change uh, between summer and winter. And one historian describes early conceptions of time as um, breadths rather than points. Because again, a little like the collop, they are something that bends and flexes with changes in the natural world, and they're responding to that. Um, I can't tell you for certain where the second comes from as a unit as a division of the day. But it is something that um, doesn't really become uh, a tool thought about outside the world of astronomy, which is um, where the name comes from. It's supposed to be a second part. uh, It's a division of the degrees of a circle. So it was used for uh, navigating where you were looking at in the night sky. It doesn't become a sort of common thing for people to even think about until the rise of the mechanical clock. Um, And again, this is where you get lots of problems uh, with things like the standardization of times in order to make sure railways all connect up. So, you know, um, a local region would set their their clocks based on noon, which was easy enough to calculate. You had this one single fixed point in the day when the sun was directly overhead a stick shows no shadow great that's noon but that changes depending on where you are that means clocks didn't sync up um and that meant that when you started having railways going from one town to another their timetables would be different so this is sort of where I get back to my my big thesis that the the you know the the, the history of measurement is a history of increasing abstraction. But it's what that abstraction allows, because as soon as you stop saying okay, I'm going to relate time directly to my experience of it, and you start creating a universal measure of time, something that can be applied across the entire globe, albeit with obviously different time zones involved, that allows you. Once you, once you separate yourself from the local, from the particular, that allows you this control at a distance. And that's a very obvious, clear uh, example with things like um, standardization of time in order to, to allow railways to sync up. Um, right. So m- measurements have got more abstract over their history, but that's also allowed more power. And it's allowed things like globalization, uh, those sorts of um, uh, changes in how the world is ordered to operate functionally correctly.
1: In some of your chapters, you talk about the debates, um, the heat misers debating with each other. And is is there really something called the caloric and does temperature actually have mass? But I do wonder when it comes to whoever the time people were and the time debaters, we haven't changed much. It's unlike unlike degrees and even unlike what you're talking about with uh, length, we haven't really changed much when it comes to seconds and minutes. I'm just wondering, do we know how they, however, whoever invented the second, how do you communicate that to someone else? What do you hold in your hands and say, this is the second or this is an hour? Is it is it grains of sand in an hourglass? It takes this much time. That seems a lot harder than distance or weight. Weight you could just say <laughs> it's this amount in the bushel, but I don't know how you do it with time.
0: Well, with um, time, one of the earliest, well, not one of the earliest, but the earliest standardized definitions was simply a division of the solar day, because a second was simply defined as one eighty sixth four hundredth of a solar day. So. That's pretty simple. You get sunrise, you get sunset, you you get the time between them and you chop that up into 86,400 parts. There's your second. Obviously, you can see the, um, uh, the problem with that is that we know that the rotation of the Earth, which obviously defines the day, changes over time <laughs> sometimes it's yes. faster sometimes it's slower which which means that this definition which held for a for a good time this 86 of the day that changed over time as well um uh, you're right time is difficult you can't hold it in your hands you can't um you can't put it in a box or keep it in a vault somewhere it has always been based on these mathematical calculations and i think that does make it a very different a very different beast to understand
1: one Day about ten years ago, I was sitting in a pretty poorly decorated brew pub, and they tried—they <laughs> had murals on the wall that tried to evoke—I don't know—I'm going to say sometime around the uh, the turn of the last century, so 1890s or 1900s—and there were plow horses pulling. Uh, big kegs of beer, let's say. But there was also a sign that said 25 miles per hour. Mm. And it dawned on me, they would not have had the concept of miles per hour where uh, in the age, in most of the age of horses. Why Why would we measure horses in miles per hour? Now, when we say something is going 25 miles an hour, we know what that means because we have cars. But if you told a person, I would surmise, if you told a person in 1904, oh yeah, he was going so fast, it was actually 20 miles an hour, they'd have (laughs) no idea what you meant. So are there other, there must be many other measurements like this, where the advent of the measurement led to just realizations about the world, about natural properties in the world that didn't even exactly relate to the measurement
0: yeah yeah i mean you mentioned one earlier uh which was sort of the invention of temperature as a concept as a quantified concept so you know that was something that if you look back to you know the early natural philosophers in ancient greek and ancient rome they when they thought about this at all they thought that there were maybe four degrees of temperature You know, there was really hot, there was hot, there was cold, and there was really cold. And that was about it. You know, that that was really all you needed to know about temperature. We were fine with four, you know, in my day, we only had four. And it is something that um, you're right, as technology changes, it changes our conception of the world. So, uh, with temperature before you get a thermometer which is um strictly speaking it's something which has a sort of uh, uh a gauge in it you get a thermoscope they're called now these don't have an accurate gauge but they're essentially that they function like thermometers and that they have uh, a liquid or a gas in them that inflates or contracts in response to changes in temperature so with these early thermoscopes you get people like Galileo he was very interested in this um where they did all these experiments where they take the thermoscope out and they would see, you know, what temperature snow melts at or what temperature water froze at. And if you look at the early correspondence of these people, um they're sort of they're sort of baffled by some of their findings. There was this great <laughs> letter I found um from a colleague of uh, Galileo's where he talks about the fact that he he goes out on a winter day and he puts his hand in a pool of water. And he says it feels colder to the touch, but then he took his thermoscope out and it showed it was actually warmer than the surrounding air, something like this anyway. and he he has this moment where he's like, Well, am I right or is the instrument right? What is the better arbiter of reality? Is it me or is it the numbers on these gauge? And this is something that happens throughout um, the history of measurement um, in that. Yeah, as you say, we invent this this new tool, this new technology, and it gives us an entirely new way of looking at the world because measurement is how we understand reality around us.
1: Okay, here's my last question. It's basically I, I come to you for affirmation. You're no doubt familiar with the Fortnite, the 14-day period, but we yes. on the gist have invented, discovered, developed the Antwintig, which is from the old English for 21. It is a three-week period. I just ask you, do you approve? I approve hugely. A three-week I've never
0: I've never heard of this. What do you what did you say? Antwintig? Antwintig? Antwintig.
1: And, and 20, yes, one in 20. Oh, of course, that and so uh, we check in and we do listener mail and we yeah. uh, issue corrections. Two weeks was too often, once a month was too uh, jejune. So we yes. went with the Antoine Tig.
0: I think that's a uh, yeah, a, a beautiful unit, one that I've I, I've certainly not heard of. How many Antoine Twigs are there in a year, then 52. Uh, into se- seventeen point three recurring. Okay, that's not yeah. that's not a useful division of the year necessarily. But no, I, I I love it. It gives you a little bit of breathing space. You don't want to check back in in a fortnight. Um, you want to do it in an antoine week. Yeah, I, right. I and we usually approve. take
1: the we usually take the last week of the year off, so it's an even seventeen into the fifty one week year. Because yeah. I never know whether to reset over the week that we're not doing a show, so it does work out a bit.
0: Well, that's been. Are you talking about the period between Christmas and New Year? I am. So that is, um, uh, has been historically a time to take off because a lot of calendars, early calendars, uh, would uh, divide the year into, um, well, they, they would use a sort of, uh, some used a lunar basis, some used a solar basis, but a lot of them came up with these sorts of um, dividing the year into a, a set number of months with 30 days, and then that en- leaves you with this these spare days at the end, these five days, five and a half, five and a bit days. And because of that, a lot of ancient uh, societies, or a few that I found anyway, the ancient Egyptians, um, the ancient Mayans, um, not so ancient Mayans, they were quite contemporary, I guess, in a way, um, (laughs) they thought that this five day period was um, often a sort of a time of spiritual peril um mm-hmm. because it was unmoored from the traditional calendar uh so it wasn't part of the usual schedule of religious and civic ceremonies so um you know the ancient egyptians thought it was a time when your soul could be in danger and you needed to say a lot of extra prayers and you know a lot of extra uh, tributes to make sure that you got through it okay which i love because i always feel unmoored at that point in the year i always feel like what, what the hell am i doing am i working am i not working is it it's not quite a new year. Year, but you're not quite finished with the old one but it's good to know that thousands of years ago people had these same worries about oh god what am i going to do next year
1: james vincent is the author of beyond measure the hidden history of measurement from qubits to quantum constants a pleasure thank you james
0: mike thanks so much for having me real nice to chat
1: And now the spiel. Two weeks ago, an African-American man died in Los Angeles police custody. The man, 31-year-old Kenan Anderson, who is a high school teacher who lives in Washington, D.C., was stopped after police encountered him running in the middle of the street at the site of an accident which had been reported. Onlookers identified Anderson as having caused the accident, though there's some dispute now which we'll get into if this is what onlookers really were saying. We know all of this because the LAPD put together an extremely thorough, nearly 20 minute video showing body cam footage of the police's initial contact with Anderson, their discussions with him as he was told to stay in place while they investigated and waited for other units, his running into the street after his initial detention, and the tasings, the multiple tasings he endured. My interest in this case is that I always delve into allegations of police shootings of unarmed black men, and Anderson fits that bill. I also have noticed slight changes in coverage and reactions to these cases in the time since the murder of George Floyd. Since then, the police have begun to arrange presentations in order to convince the public that their actions were justified. That of course would have been impossible with the George Floyd murder. The LAPD's presentation was assembled with an emphasis on narrative and, if not transparency, then at least the appearance of transparency, as can be gleaned from the narration the viewer encounters right at the top of that video. Hello, my name is Captain Kelly Muniz, Commanding Officer of Media Relations Division of the Los Angeles Police Department. This critical incident community briefing is intended to provide you with information about an in-custody death that occurred in Pacific Division in the City of Los Angeles on January 3rd, 2023 at around 8.15 p.m. And what we do see from the vantage point first of a motorcycle patrol officer is a man running in the street. Other motorists and onlookers point him out. That's him, they say. He asks, the patrol officer asks, he's the one who caused the accident. It seems they say yes. Okay. The man, who we learn to be Kenan Anderson, says, somebody's trying to kill me and I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. Anderson is jumpy. He's agitated. He doesn't comply with the officer's requests, which are requests. He's not placed under arrest. He's not charged. He's not even touched. Anderson says he wants to be seen, presumably to prevent brutality. There's a citizen whose face is blurred, but we see that she says, "We're watching you." The officer asks, as you will hear, as several times, for Anderson to sit down, sit down right there on the sidewalk, which he says is a place where you can be seen. You want to be seen? Sit right there sit right there if you want to have somebody see you please.
0: okay please just sit down for me a second here okay
1: please Look, sit sir. down
0: for me sit down You're
1: putting a thing on me sit down i'm not hot. putting
0: anything come please. here sit down over here please i don't want you in the road
1: Please.
0: come here i don't want you in the road come here please. come here
1: come uh-huh. here come here then Anderson runs, and this is where it gets very hard to watch. Anderson is held down by multiple officers. He's threatened to be tased, and then he is tased. At one point, he yells out, "Help! They're trying to kill me!" To the hey, stop! Him, tase you. stop I'm going Stop! Which he had been saying already, but then he evokes the name of the martyred black man who must come to mind when any black man is detained by police. me are trying to but George Floyd was kneeled on. He suffocated right in the street. Anderson, though tased, was taken to the hospital conscious. We see that. Like Floyd, onlookers taped the incident, but none of their footage was nearly as clear as the LAPD's. There was even, in one of the pieces of civilian footage included in the official presentation, a conversation between an onlooker and an Uber driver. That guy right there, he pulled that accident and he was trying to see my car. That guy right there, he caused the accident, the driver is telling someone else on the street. He was trying to steal my car. I'm not sure if the police had tape that wasn't quite as exculpatory as that, and if they chose that tape to leave it out. I'm totally speculating, but this one was at least in the presentation. Something to go on. It's a piece of evidence. In the subsequent investigation, the police disclosed that a toxicology report came back positive for cannabis and cocaine. Anderson was not behaving calmly, he was not behaving rationally. It doesn't mean that the number of times he was tased was justified. It doesn't mean that police followed proper procedure overall. It is one piece of a puzzle for the public to have, as more information. If information is accurate, it is better to have more than less. Of course, the presence of a toxicology report was criticized by such outlets as Vice and The Intercept as a smear against Anderson. I say it's not, I say it's a piece of relevant information. Doesn't tell you everything you need to know, but tells you something. A piece of less relevant information in judging police culpability was the fact that Anderson was a teacher. I said that. I don't want to erase the man's history or not give you his biography or not make him seem like a full person. But in evaluating what the police did that day, they couldn't have known he was a teacher. They couldn't have, I guess, known he was on cocaine, but they could have judged, okay, this is a person perhaps not operating at the top of his faculties. The LA Times prominently leans into the fact that he was a teacher. In a story headlined, LAPD's repeat tasing of teacher who died appears excessive, experts say. I'd like to weigh in and say that the expert analysis is quite relevant and that he was a vacationing teacher is irrelevant to the incident. Online, on Twitter, Anderson's job status was commonly cited by activists, as was another aspect of the story, which has never been established. Benjamin Crump, lawyer for George Floyd's family, tweeted, On January 3rd, Keenan Anderson was reportedly involved in a traffic accident, and when LAPD arrived, they restrained and repeatedly tased him on the ground. The 31-year-old English teacher died of cardiac arrest hours later in the hospital. Was this repeated use of the taser necessary? That's a good question. But the sentiment doesn't indicate that anything happened between the arrival of the LAPD right He writes when the LAPD arrived they restrained and repeatedly tased him so it doesn't indicate that there was many minutes as there were I don't want and I can't play it all for you in fact there's a seven minute gap in the video but between the police arriving and then Anderson fleeing and then the police attempting to restrain and tase Anderson. SiriusXM host and immigrant rights activist, Kasim Rashid, tweets, Kenan Anderson, a 31-year-old high school teacher and father, stopped LA police for help after an accident. They instead cuffed him, pinned him, and tased him repeatedly as he begged them to stop. Anderson was not the one who called the cops. He was found running in the street and pointed out as being involved in the accident, possibly as having caused the accident. That is a little unclear. Anderson said, they're trying to kill me. Please help me. And a couple other statements that didn't make a lot of sense, like, I had a stunt today. He repeated, a stunt. Kirk Acevedo, with 223,000 followers, writes, Keenan Anderson was a high school English teacher and father who called the police for help after a car accident. Instead, police restrained him and repeatedly tased him with 50,000 volts. Again, it's not how it happened. And here is Olayemi Olorin a New York-based public defender, a political commentator. She has 100,000 followers. She advocates for the prison abolition movement.
0: It gets so exhausting trying to figure out a new way to tell the world the same shit repeatedly. I just, like, what words to come up with to say how fucking wrong it is, how unnecessary it is, how there's no reason, no justification under the sun for why a 31-year-old man gets into a car accident and he calls the police for help because he, had a, he got into a car accident. He has an anxiety attack and they fucking kill him.
1: Well, maybe some of that happened, but almost certainly some of it did not happen. And he did die. And it is important to figure out why and who should be held accountable. The positive thing, if you want to call it that, is that I do think this is what Los Angeles is trying to do. I don't have implicit faith in the new mayor, Karen Bass's, willingness, or ability to do the right thing, whatever that is, but we are generally seeing the power structure taking the correct steps in pursuing justice. In this horrific tragedy, there's another sign of progress, in a way. And it's when you contrast the reactions and emotions to the killing and even non-killing of African-Americans that happened right after George Floyd's murder. You remember the case of Jacob Blake, the Wisconsin man who was shot by police after refusing orders and attempted to enter a car with children inside? Blake was holding a knife the entire time, which police saw, which is quite visible on footage that was later shown to the public. But in the moment, prominent voices, including Benjamin Crump, spread the message that the police had shot another unarmed black man. CNN, at the time, put the question to Crump directly. Was he armed at the time? Based on everything we know, he was not armed at the time. He was armed. Made a huge difference in the public's reaction. Because when word went out that another unarmed black man was shot and many said killed, emotions ran high. The Milwaukee Bucks refused to play their scheduled game based on the killing of an unarmed black man. Protesters flooded into Kenosha. Counter-protesters did too. A mentally disturbed man attacked an improperly armed young guy named Kyle Rittenhouse. He was shot dead, was the disturbed man. Another protester attacked Rittenhouse with a skateboard. He was shot dead. You gotta think the misinformation, if it were replaced by information, there is a good chance that none of that would have happened. There's often misinformation in the wake of a horrific police killing. But two, two plus years ago, the media was less cautious about spreading misinformation. Of course, it can be argued that for oh, 100, 200 years before that, the media erred on the side of police. But er, they did, and they have been. Remember the case of Micaiah Bryant, the 16 year old shot to death in Columbus, Ohio, the very day of the Derek Chauvin verdict? Bryant's aunt was widely quoted when she spoke to cameras about the death of her 15-year-old niece. The aunt got the age wrong. The aunt also said, the niece, Makaya, was the one who called the police, an untrue assertion. And then the aunt said this. Yeah, she had a knife for her hand, but it was way before they shot her. She had already dropped the
0: knife.
1: She had not dropped the knife. She was mid-swing about to plunge it into the girl she was fighting with's chest. The officer in that tragic shooting, as with Jacob Blake, was eventually, and I would say properly, cleared. And there was a discussion about the propriety of police always going for kill shots instead of trying to shoot a limb. But the false narrative set in, aided by prominent news outlets spreading misinformation. April 21, 2021, Morning Edition tweet, NPR, Micaiah Bryan felt she was in danger and called the Columbus police, according to her aunt. She was then shot and killed by an officer. New York Daily News, April 20th, 2021, Ohio cops shoot and kill 16-year-old black girl Micaiah Bryant shortly before the Derek Chauvin verdict. Reports say Bryant's aunt said the teen herself called 911 during a preceding incident. That same exact bit of misinformation is going on in the Keenan Anderson case. And there's always going to be conflicting reports and misleading reports in the wake of one of these killings. Activists are want to frame the victims in the most favorable light. And yeah, again, I'll say it for years, the police account was the only one that was reported and it led to a lot of abuse. But for a time, the correction was to instinctively credit the biggest critics of police, calling Benjamin Crump, for instance, who does important civil rights work, the Attorney General of Black America. Crump, by the way, also made key misstatements in the wake of the killing, not just of Blake, but in the case of another client of his, Breonna Taylor. He, like all other parties, has an agenda. And his words, no matter if you think they're righteous, cannot be reported as inherently right. The pretty slick but far from dispositive video the LAPD put together has been criticized by police critics as just that, too slick, an edited narrative that doesn't give the entire story. I'm not saying it does. A real investigation will hopefully get further along that road. But this was the promise of police body cams that the public would know. It was sold to police departments with the argument that, hey, if it's true that you, the police, are blamed for acts which aren't improper, wouldn't you want more video to show the fuller picture? Right? And some good departments said yes, and some had to be forced into saying yes. But it was a compelling argument. Now that we're getting what was argued for a fuller picture. We can't advocate throwing it out as mere propaganda. Kinnan Anderson's death was absolutely a tragedy. It's good, however, that there wasn't a burn-it-all-down reaction, and I'm further glad that institutions, police, media, officials, are not contributing to inaccuracies that are going around. Mayor Bass released a statement which read in part, no matter what these investigations determine, the need for urgent change is clear. We must reduce the use of force overall. And that's it for today's show. Corey Juarez, the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pascas, CEO of Peachfish Productions, and The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For all your advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Peru, Peru. Thanks for listening.